Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Mike Boris and this is Straight Talk. The thing that should make us fear most is any notion that the war is inevitable. It's got to be fought. We're better off if it's fought now. From Whitlam and Mao to Albanese and Xi, the relationship between Australia and China has witnessed many ups and downs over the last 50 years. China may be one step closer to attacking Taiwan. Bob Carr, welcome to Straight Talk. Great honour to be with you, Mike. Bob Carr will join the Senate and will take on the role of Minister of Foreign Affairs. America is prone, again, to use the word, to paranoia. Very insecure empire. China is moving along at warp speed. And we're moving along at snail speed. America's got to learn, in some respects, China will overtake them. Were there a showdown, Australia would automatically be with America on day one or day two. That worries me deeply. We could not send any assets of our Navy towards Taiwan or into the South China Sea if we were at war with China, the former Australian general, now deceased, expressed the view that we wouldn't last three minutes. Okay, welcome to Straight Talk. Great honour to be with you, Mike. And it's a long time since uh, I heard that beautiful orator's voice on the telephone when I was sitting in Point Piper at the time I was married with young kids and I get a phone call in the evening and it's uh, Bob Carr here, Premier Bob Carr. So it must have been uh, during your premiership, obviously, around 2005 or perhaps a, around that time, a little bit after, around that time. And you asked me would I join the Powerhouse Museum as a um, one of the trustees and what could I say? I had nowhere to go. <laughs> the Premier asked you for a favour and to do it and I did and I, I'll be honest with you, it was one of the best experiences that I've ever had. I You asked me to get on because of my financial background but – I'll declare to you now, I didn't do too much of that. Um, I was mostly ensconced in understanding the, um, the, the, what the curator had to tell us about the collection and mm. what the collection meant to us in Australia and how important that Museum of Applied yeah. Arts and Sciences, now called the Powerhouse Museum, was to New South Wales. Yeah. Do you remember that time? Yeah, I do. Yeah, the museum's about creativity, Australian creativity, capturing some of that and that embraces everything from the, the steam trains through to the uh, interior design, for example, yeah, um, all under the all under the rubric of creativity, Australian creativity. It was a, it was a fascinating time for me, and it, what's interesting to me is that the premier was 
which is who is you, is interested in arts and sciences. Um, we don't get that much interest by premiers today in the artistic world. It's more, it's, it seems to me to be much more hardline today in terms of premiership. Yeah, but of course the evidence is mounted that if, if a city is going to be globally competitive, it's got to do super well in the space of theatre, all, all, all types of music, um, contemporary art, um, historic art museums. Um, no city would claim to be economically competitive unless it's able to offer sophistication across all of that sphere, arts, creativity, because it's harder to attract the, uh, the, top, the, the top CEOs and others if your city hasn't got that, that broad reputation. When you were the Premier, the significance of, let's say, Sydney as a destination or as a place on a global map, how important was that to you as a Premier? Well, crucial, I, I felt that we were in competition with Singapore, Shanghai. Um, we had to do well up against the uh, truly global cities, New York, London, Paris. Um, and there's a great, a great focus at that time of pulling in regional headquarters. Um, since that time, Singapore has overtaken us very clearly. Yeah. Um, so what else are we offering? I think our offering is pretty good. There are areas, though, where I spoke to a Chinese student the other day, um, Sydney University. Uh, he's seen a lot of the world because his parents were diplomats. And I said, what were your impressions of Sydney when you came here? And he said, well, of course, it wasn't as developed as Beijing, but he went on to say some positive things about it. And I thought, there is a warning. There's a warning. In terms of Beijing, its scale, the quality of its architecture, what I would say, its urbanism, he just thought it was an easy, relaxed opinion. We're less developed than they. And that was a bit of realism. And I've heard it before. Certainly in Singapore, you wouldn't look to Sydney apart from James Packer's casino building for cutting-edge contemporary architecture. They do better. And then there's Shanghai and Beijing. That's interesting. It's uh, Why is it important then for us to be, I don't know if the word's competitive, but at the cutting edge, let's call it, relative to our closest neighbours being, say, Singapore and, say, Shanghai? I think, I think because we, we're attracting, we want to attract the best creative minds in business and in technology, um, but in every sphere of activity. I mean, if the, if the uh, opera or the symphony orchestra is making a bid to get a conductor for three years. Into Australia. Into Australia from Berlin, say, or, yep. or, or Paris or, or Chicago. Um, it's going to hinge on the, the overall image of Sydney as a place to live and a place to work. Um, and it comes down to things like uh, does the opera house measure up when it on, 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 on acoustics? Is it a world-class house acoustically? So all, the, all these things count. And I think, I, th I think we do want to live in a place that's recognised, not just as provincial, but as uh, with a powerful appeal. Do you think that's changed in current administrations? I think it's, I think it's we've, 
we've lost out in some respects. Singapore is a Asian centre of finance, for example. And we're going to face another boost of competition as Hong Kong, despite the Beijing takeover, builds the Greater Bay Area, embracing Macau with its gaming-based tourism, Shenzhen with its, its world leadership in technology, Hong Kong with all the diverse offerings of Hong Kong, finance in particular, finance, tourism, technology, gaming, manufacturing, you go around to Guangzhou, capital city of Guangdong province, um, the Greater Bay Area is going to be very powerful. It's going to overtake San Francisco Bay, Tokyo Bay. So that's the sort of competition we're up against. And the Chinese cities, all of them linked by a high-speed rail network that would go, in, in terms of its length, would go right around Australia, uh, are going to be the, uh, I would think, the most advanced examples of urbanism in the world. They'll be the most recent examples and they will take the best, and, and I'm being a bit provocative here, the best that Tokyo, that, that Japan has had to offer because Japanese cities, I think, are great successes. It's funny you should say this because um, only this morning there was a release from a mob called CoreLogic um, and you know there's a few of them around, but CoreLogic being one of the leaders in terms of a- analytics around new housing in Australia and, of course, we've got a major problem in relation to the amount of housing we have in Australia and a lot of the housing that has not been developed in Australia over the last 10 years, we're about 1.2 million in aggregate short of what we would ordinarily would develop is has relationships back to the approving bodies being local councils and in some cases state governments when state governments have to, New South Wales state government can override the councils if it's more than $50 million development. But it's about this NIMBYism, I don't want you to, no one, I don't want, no one, not in my backyard, which is what NIMBYism means. Um, I don't want this development going on. I don't want urbanisation as well. I don't want to, to bring more people mm. into the city mm. and I don't want the city to look better. So is this a, a, um, a result of us here in New South Wales having way too much say as individuals and the government not having enough strength. No, it's a, I'll tell you what it is. It's an example of regulation strangling our society. And it's now impossible for an ethical developer committed to good design to get an approval and it seems under, now I'm, I'm guessing here, three to five years. Um, we've we've used up the former industrial sites around Sydney. They've been used up and quite appropriately rezoned for high-density dwelling. Um, without that having taken place, we'd have an absolute crisis of rent and housing affordability. Um, but we've got to shorten the approval sign times because both state and local government bureaucrats are dragging it out too long. Why is that? Um, I think it's the instincts of bureaucrats protecting themselves. And there have been some scandals at local government level and at state level where unreputable developers have have, have had an in. The, the government's response to that is to overregulate and everyone's terrified of making a pro-development decision. As Premier, because I was secure in my own reputation as an ethical uh, politician who wouldn't make judgments that conferred favouritism on any developers, I wasn't scared to make a pro-development decision. If it were the right location, 
and good design accommodating concerns about public transport and all the rest. But I think politicians in response to scandals that have occurred have embedded the planning process with so many regulations based on the fear of bureaucrats or elected leaders in making a pro-development decision. Now, clearly, with the resumption of immigration and a catch-up element in the annual intake for the next two years, um, there'll be enormous pressures on housing. We just need to get those new apartment blocks approved. But that means taking brave decisions. I mean, okay, we're going to have another 40,000 people in the Green Square area and its environs, uh, Green Square and the other development sites. Um, Around Alexandria, Botany, yeah. et cetera. Yeah, so we're going to lift that, I think, by 40,000, even 60,000 people living in apartments. But you need to make a brave decision about whether Moore Park Golf Course stays a golf course or whether it becomes something akin to the New York Central Park, Manhattan's Central Park. Putting all these people in relatively small apartments, and it's a necessity, it must happen. If it doesn't happen, you're going to have a rent and housing availability crisis as we we absorb uh, 350,000 migrants each year for the next two years. you're going, to, you're going to have to take some bold decisions to give, to give them. And I've worked with uh, uh, the architects at, at UTS and with Clovermore. There are very good plans for taking Moore Park, which has got a very, a very narrow base, and, and making it a broad-based recreational park, not just devoted to one recreational uh, pursuit, golf. We, we, you know, you know, part of Sydney where you've got eight other golf courses. Uh, running out to La Barouze. So higher density, yes, easier approvals, we must have that. Good planning, good design are the key to getting community support. I always found that residents where I live in Maroubra would be satisfied. They knew higher density had to come, especially along the major transport arteries, along Anzac Parade, for example, but they were saying effectively, give us good design. Don't have car parking at street level. Um, build retail activity into the podium and the tower on top, but make it cutting-edge design, not balconies l- looking like uh, like uh, drawers in a, a chest of drawers pulled out. But but, but let, let, let us have the sort of design that they'd, they'd expect in um, in Holland or, or Germany or Scandinavia. Um, yeah, three terms, Premier. I think it's the longest in New South Wales, yeah. the longest term as a Premier in New South Wales. Others are in the similar place in other states, but Bob was the guy in New South Wales. He then went on to be foreign minister under uh, Gillard um, and uh, that would have been a very interesting period. But I would like to know, I mean, I think everyone knows, when do you sort of sit down and say to yourself, okay, I'm going to hang my boots up in this political game? I made the decision to get out based on, as someone who'd been there so long, the difficulty of selling a fresh and positive message. I remember my last state ALP conference at the town hall, a big affair, um, you give your address, I announced a new initiative which which was no-fault whole-of-life insurance cover for anyone, anyone who'd uh, suffered in a catastrophic car accident. And it was a big reform. I remember visiting a hospital some years earlier um, and meeting a family... She'd been in a car accident, the mum. She was in bed. She didn't know she might, she might be spending the rest of her life in that bed. But there was no 
whole of life guaranteed cover to look after her and her family. For the balance of her life. Yes. Yes. And I was able to say our, our tort law reforms have brought down the cost of green slips. So they've all come down, I think it was a guaranteed um, $100 because we reformed, we got the rorts, the legal rorts out of the scheme. And I said in the context of that, we can put a small surcharge on the cost of a green slip that will pay for whole of life care, no fault, you don't have lawyers arguing who was to blame in the accident. It might have been your fault. The point is, have you been catastrophically injured? Well, this scheme will look after you for the rest of your life. And it'll pay you out of the extra on the premium. Yeah. The extra yeah. bit on the premium is going yeah. to cover it. Because we had a we had a, a big improvement in the cost yeah. of premiums. We could put on a, a little spike to pay for it. And it got no coverage. I thought this was a major reform. It got no coverage because there was a, a, a squalid little factional debate a bit of colour on the floor of the conference. And I thought, Bob, in the old days, before coming to the conference, you would have had the TV into the hospital to meet meet the family in this situation and talked up your reform. Um, and they were, it could be that the media just becomes a bit tired of you because you've been around that long. And that, that sends a message that it might be time to push off. And I, I think in retrospect, I was lucky... But the flow of creative policy and the entertainment you're able to attach to it as you announced it, the vaudeville. Your own personal entertainment. Yeah. 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 Um, had worked for so long. But if you're, you're looking, looking at long-serving politicians, you think of Thatcher, Reagan over his eight years, um, he couldn't have gone longer. Um, there's, there's a decade's about the limit. The decade's about the limit and then they think, oh, push off, we need another magician performing his tricks. And that, But how do you work out what you do, what do you do after that? I mean, oh, yeah. You... Well, I, I, I thought I still want challenges and I still want to learn something. Macquarie appealed to me because it was a big, bold, international Australian show. Um, and that was useful. I joined the board of Dimmix. I wouldn't have gone on any other board. But Dimmix appealed to me because it was about books. Yeah. Book retailing, it's a wonderful family company um, and very successful. Um, then I returned to politics to be foreign minister and after that I thought I'm not looking for private sector. I'm, I'm now in that Buddhist state of wanting nothing except the gift of good health. That's, the that's enlightenment. Yeah, that's well. I, <laughs> you reached I, I, it. I, would, I wouldn't claim to be enlightened. I'd like that state but it is nice when you think, look, I don't want to strive for, for much Good health, time with Helena, being able to watch Succession over a home-cooked meal or, or a bit of takeaway um, and, and time to do a, a bushwalk or go down to the surf at Maroubra. I mean, that's a, that's a very happy state to reach. But your intellectual curiosity must take you somewhere. It doesn't mean you're yeah. going to stop being a student of things. Yeah. What so, are you a student of and what have you been a student of in the last, say, let's five, five years, ten years? Um, International relations, so I've staked out a position where I, I'm saying Australia should recognise Palestine. It's not the, by any means the biggest issue in Australian foreign policy, but it attracts a lot of attention. And I'm, I've been able to uh, help tilt the policy of my party on that. But more, more importantly... Could because, I just stop you there for a yeah, second? Sure. Because under Hawke, it was more about Israel. Yeah, Hawke 
and I at the time had grown up where you thought to be a social democrat in, a, in the Labor Party meant you had to be sympathetic to a state that had been shaped by its Labor Party and seemed to embody some of the virtues of social democracy. We knew nothing of the Palestinian story. Yep. We, we, we saw it through the eyes. The Palestinians were described by uh, one of their people as the victims of victims, the victims yep. of victims. And if you think about that, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's freighted with significance. So I, I, getting to know their story and thinking they were being unfairly excluded from consideration by governments, I took a stand when I was foreign minister and got Australia to shift its voting pattern on one big occasion at the UN, standing up to my own Prime Minister, Julia Gillard, and getting it. But a bigger issue is one that I'm motivated to contribute. I, I, if, if I had to dedicate the years I've got left to any cause, it would be the avoidance of a war between China and the United States. And there are many ways of approaching that, but not least because it would be a disaster for Australia. Are you saying a, the avoidance of a war between China and the United States, or are you saying, or does that mean, by definition, an avoidance of a war between Australia and China? Yes, that too, that too. Because well, well, which, which is more important? Which is leading this? Is this about keeping us out of the war? Or well, the, fir- the first question is to, to see... To, to add your voice to there being a detente mm. between the US and China, the prevailing power. Kissinger style. Yes, which he has spoken about in the last week marking his 100th, 100th birthday. I read a long, I read a big article by him, I think it was in The Economist. In The Economist, yeah. In The Economist. That's very significant. Yeah. So he says there's a, there, there does not have to be American paranoia about dominance the DLP words, dominance, leadership, primacy, DLP, dominance, leadership, primacy. As opposed to the Democratic Liberal Party. Yes. Where's he going with DLP? The DLP words, if America becomes focused that everything China does is a threat to our dominance, our leadership, our primacy, you've got a paranoid state that feeds a pre-war tension. America's got to learn a sophistication that in some respects, China will overtake them. There are people who believe that in artificial intelligence, China's ahead of the US. You mean overtake in what realm? You yeah. mean, you mean yeah, in, economically? Well, in, in, in some realms, clear, clearly, America's got nothing to teach the world when it comes to high-speed rail. They can't build one from San Francisco to Los Angeles. It collapsed. It was a financial failure. China's linked every one of its cities to high-speed rail. They've got enough high-speed rail to go right round the Australian coast. And they're building enough to do complete the circuit again, but there are other areas. There are other areas where American creativity will win out every time. And I think in another ten years, we might be looking at a share of the world economy not that much different from what we've got today. The, the Chinese economy, yes, bigger than the U.S., but not that much bigger. And America, with enough specialization, that it doesn't have to fear China economically. China is, China's still got an enormous, if you said to a Chinese gathering, you, you, you be ordinary people, a focus group, uh, do you see yourself as a, a great power? I suspect you'd get a lot of Chinese pushing back and saying, no, you ought to come in, you ought to come out here to Liaoning province. All our steel making has collapsed and we've got 20% unemployment. Um, or 
um, someone from the far west of China would say, don't talk about us as a great power. Uh, we're still waiting for uh, uh, this water infrastructure. Um, so I don't think there's a case for American paranoia about the rise of China. China's a constrained power. China's got something like 15 land-based neighbours and that's a challenge to its global thinking. It's got to have peace with all those stand states, for example. Many of China's neighbours have historically been at war with it. Vietnam, for example. China, America hasn't got that. America's got safe possession of a continent with its ally, Canada, and its partner, Mexico. So I, I, I would, I, th- I think a more sophisticated American pr- approach like that urged by Kissinger makes possible more collaboration as well as competition in the China, the all-important China-US relationship, but above all, the avoidance of war. The avoidance of war. I've read a novel called 2034. It's got to be taken seriously. It's about a war between China and the United States. One of the co-authors is Admiral James Stravitas, who's a former head of NATO and has headed two aircraft carrier ship commands uh, and knows his stuff. It's a frightening analysis which confirms how quickly a war could become a nuclear exchange and and a slow-motion nuclear exchange with China and America inflicting damage through theatre nuclear weapons. But where does this paranoia come from or is this just politics? Yeah, I th- I th- look, um, China, China's got the same capacity for paranoia, but America's paranoia is that of a prevailing power. Right. That knows it's luxuriated in primacy, seeing it threatened, as it imagines, by the rise of a state with a different language, a different culture, a civilizational power that can trace its language, its habits of thought back thousands of years, almost as if almost as if there were there were a state in Egypt today with links back to the time of the pharaohs. That's what Chinese civilization represents strengths and weaknesses. Um, so, so America looks at this and it looks at China engaged in, not aggression, that's the wrong, the wrong word, assertiveness in the South China Sea, assertiveness. And um, America says threat to primacy. Now, that should ring alarm bells. Because, you should explain primacy though because, I yeah. mean, primacy has lots of meanings. Yeah, yeah. It's it's the expectation America will always prevail in a showdown. So America demonstrated its primacy when there was a flare-up in the Clinton administration in the Taiwan Strait. America just sent two aircraft carriers, if I remember correctly, through the strait, and the Chinese stopped their intimidation of Taiwan. That can't happen today. China learnt... Every country learns from a strategic setback like that. And China learnt, well... Uh, we've got to have a deterrent threat in terms of our missile strength and our naval strength. And they responded appropriately. Their wealth increased. They did what any nation on the rise does. It it enhances its military strength. Um, And America had reveled in the primacy. It was able to project at Taiwan under the Clinton administration. Um, I think... I think about 95, 1995, that flare-up in the Taiwan Strait occurred. 
but it knows it hasn't got that easy capacity to prevail today. Hence, it's looking at rallying its allies in Asia. Hence, the pressure on Canberra. Hence, the pressure on Canberra. So we're talking about AUKUS sort of thing yeah, now. So they're, they're, they're saying to Canberra, ooh, and, and, and the Americans are pretty sophisticated. First of all, they've got enormous reserves of charm, but also they play mind games. One of their mind games is to say, you're, we, we, we've got no ally like you. You're, 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 um, we've got no friend closer than you. Um, we're just beginning to doubt whether you're that good in Asia. We know you'd come and help us if we're in trouble in the Middle East. We'll get, we'll get. Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Advisors and special forces sent to, to Iraq, but we just worry that you may not be that. And so the response of people heading Australian government agencies is to think, oh, we've got to go overboard to impress America. We've lost the capacity to disagree with them in the way that happened from time to time, say under Hawke, going back to Hawke's time, disagreements with the Americans but expressed as friends under the architecture of the alliance. So there's an expectation today, for example, that were there a showdown between the US and China, Australia would automatically be with America on day one or day two. And I, that worries me deeply. So they, do, you, do you think that the general expectation is we'd be there shoulder to shoulder with uh, you know, Albanese would say, our prime minister, yeah, yeah we're on, we're, we're coming. Yeah, so imagine something in the South China Sea or Taiwan Strait. Imagine America saying, well, we've been saying for the last five years the, the showdown's inevitable, it had to happen, which is a shocking state of mind to reach because that, that was – the state of mind in the European capitals before 1914, August 1914, that sense of inevitability. So we've got to, we've got to go to war. Um, and a call would be made from the Oval Office to our Prime Minister's office, maybe coming, I've always thought of this, on a Sunday afternoon. Um, well, my mate, Anthony, he'd be groping for the name. because Our forces are now... And now in conflict, um, I want I want to be able to say in my address to the American people that our allies, Australia and Japan are with us. And I've just spoken to our mate, the Prime Minister of Japan, who tells me he's committed and I want to be able to say that you're committed too. And that is, that's an awful moment because it's got a, 
It's got a disturbingly high possibility of becoming a nuclear exchange. And in such a nuclear exchange, as everyone concedes, there would be targets in northern Australia, which we are militarising, allowing the, the Americans to militarise, that would make themselves a surrogate target. As a French diplomat said to me, and I think he's enjoying himself a bit too much making the point, um, he shouldn't have been smiling as, as broadly, in a nuclear exchange, it can be an advantage to have a surrogate target. Which means Pine Gap. It means, it means Pine Gap, uh, Tyndale Air Force Base uh, in the Northern Territory, um, or especially if, we're, if it were hosting B-52 bombers at the time, capable of flying um, with nuclear weapons towards Chinese cities. So... Um, that's 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 the sobering point for Australia. This is not a war in the Middle East. America, as Malcolm Fraser pointed out, has got a capacity to lose wars. Think of Iraq, think of Afghanistan, Vietnam, Vietnam, which is not distant history. And in those wars, they lost to to peasant militia, unified by a nationalism that said we're rejecting a foreign presence in our country. Um. This time we'd be up against the PLA. And we, we know, for example, that we could not send any assets of our Navy towards Taiwan or into the South China Sea if we were at war with China with any guarantee they wouldn't be quickly sunk. We couldn't send a submarine to engage with Chinese submarines around Hainan Island, for example, um, without having a knowledge that they're likely to lose. A former a former Australian general, now deceased, I'm told, expressed the view privately that we wouldn't last three minutes. The consensus seems to be, I, I, I think our military leadership in Canberra, this is assumption on my part, it's me guessing at instincts, would be petrified of a political instruction that we must find forces to send to go into combat with the Yanks. And indeed, there's a view that the Americans wouldn't be that interested in us complicating the, the military landscape by sending a presence. They really want us to make a commitment that we're with them and allow them to carry on. You know, if you go back in history, Menzies, Menzies who's the great liberal yep. prime minister in the 50s and up till retired in early 66, he, he was quite explicit. He stood him up. Yeah, he said we will not engage in a commitment an alliance around Taiwan. We're not going to do that. We're, we're, we're with the American alliance. We're with ANZUS, which his government had signed in 1951. But we draw the line at combat on behalf of Taiwan. And Alexander Downer, the truth came out in 2004 in an interview he gave where he said, no, ANZUS would not apply to a conflict over Taiwan. He had to beat a little tactical verbal retreat because the Americans didn't like that truth being put out there. But the, um, if I can put it bluntly, Mark, I don't know any Australians who'd be saying we should be sending forces to run the risk of, of, of uh, death in combat 
in a showdown over Taiwan. Why would Americans say that? But I mean, I don't mean American politicians, mm. but why would America, do Americans say that, do you think? No, they don't. They don't. But America is prone, again, to use the word, to paranoia. Um, um, America is a very insecure empire. It's got 800 bases around the world. Its armed forces are bigger than the, the next largest half dozen combined. It's got no serious threat to its, its, I won't say dominance, leadership, primacy, I'll say to its prevailing power, the dominant power, and very influential through its unique alliance system. America, America should take the approach that we're likely to have a status quo in terms of our relationship with China, the balance of power between us and China over the next few decades. China, in some respects, will get stronger. In other respects, it'll be more vulnerable, the demographic decline, the decline of China's population, for example. Um, and, and manage it, manage the, the constant shift, constant shifting in relative power. Manage it to maintain peace. You see, if it, if it did become a war, like the one described in that terrifying book, um, Stravidas, an admiral, one of the two authors, so it's got to be given credibility. If it did become a war and both sides inflict terrible damage, nuclear strikes on one another before there's a ceasefire, we'd be living in a world where the dominant powers would be India, Iran, Russia, because America would be recovering from nuclear strikes at perhaps half a dozen of its cities, and China would be out of the picture because America had taken out some of those huge Chinese cities with populations of 10 million or so. A large part of their population would be reduced to living in in tents. They'd be suffering radiation sickness. Their economies would be flattened. I just Sometimes I think of the, the, the pro-American hawks in Australia who seem to be cheering up the prospect of a, a showdown and wonder whether they've ever given five minutes to think about the damage to America and the American-led world if they do have their dream of America saying, this is it, we've got to take on China militarily. Do you think the, the, the likes of Russia and Iran are actually waiting for something like this to happen? I think, yeah, well, that's a, that's a terrific question. I think, I think in the heart of the foreign ministries and the security bureaus, in those places. In those places. There would have to be a bit of, what's it called, game? Gamesmanship. Gamesmanship. Urging. Yeah. What happens? Yeah. Where does Iran stand if America slides or sleepwalks? They're the good verbs to use, slides or, or sleepwalks towards a war with China. What, what sort of world do we have? What sort of opportunities will there be for us? Don't you think Putin at the moment, besieged in every way from his, his reckless plunge into a war, a European war, would welcome nothing more than the, the distraction? A wonderful distraction for, for him. So, I mean, for people who want, people who think the least worst option for the world is one where America is the the peacemaker, where it enjoys the status of a prevailing power, the last thing you would want would be a showdown with a China 
that has now got this missile and nuclear strength, not up there on a level with America, but a capacity to reach America. And to do damage. It doesn't matter. It's just damage. Well, you, you think about the United States. The United States we know, the United States we're so fond of, endlessly interested in, but, but imagine if San Diego, Galveston, Seattle, sort of second-tier cities were the subject of nuclear strikes and, and the bleeding of the economy, the leeching of America's strength. With the US dollar. In the wake of that. Good night. Yeah, yeah. The US yeah. dollar. Do you want, the, you want the, the most powerful state in the post-America, post-China world to be India, which very likely would be a Hindu dictatorship, with India saying, um, shift the headquarters of the UN from this, this scarred, beaten, thrashed America to Delhi. <laughs> now that's, a, that's the sort of thing you've got to contemplate. And India in alliance with Iran... Um, and Russia, that 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 India-Russia partnership has has seen out this war. You've got a, a, the the Indian and Russian leaders pledging the undying nature of their friendship, even during this period of war in Ukraine. So, I, I, I'm terrified when I think of how some experts are saying the chance of war over Taiwan between America and China is 50%. Okay, let's say that nothing happens. The US does resolve from that position, or moves back from that position, resolves from the position and allows, but do you think China will actually go and take over Taiwan? I mean, is that inevitable? It, it, it's a mystery wrapped in an enigma. We, there's speculation from both sides. Um, I'm terrified when I hear Americans say, our last chance to do something to stop this would be expire in 2027. This is the sort of talk that led to World War One. The Germans, the Germans behind closed doors saying at the rate of Russian railway construction, our last chance, our last chance of beating Russia in a war is going to be 1915. Sense of inevitability. No Hitler saying, Hitler saying our last chance of beating the Russians is going to be going in 1941, after that they'll grow too strong. I mean, it, it is terrifying when I hear American generals say things like our last chance to block a Chinese takeover of Taiwan. And on the Chinese side, I would say much the same. The growth of a notion in Beijing, if it, if it is in fact taking place, that our last chance to move will be in this decade. So the worst thing... The thing that should make us fear most is any notion that the war is inevitable, it's got to be fought, we're better off if it's fought now. When I think back to the late Senator Jim Olin and listening to him talk about, in his view, the inevitability and I um, of a war with China and then I hear about uh, and also about his view was that we're totally underdone. Um, I've interviewed in this very studio um, Major General um, uh, Mick Ryan said exactly the same thing. Um, I've been a, a great fan, although not haven't heard much of it recently, of Catherine McGregor. She was talking about the inevitability, although you did mention earlier that she may have changed her, her position. That worries the hell out of me um, because we're underdone. Um, does it 
it, what this all tells me, listening to what you've got to say, is we're best off uh, adopting the Menzies view of ANZUS or, of any, or even Orcas for that matter. You guys want to go to war? We we would help you a little bit, but we're not we're not sending troops. We don't want to make ourselves a target because as long as our proverbial points to the ground, we will never change America's view about primacy, their view on primacy, or what they're entitled as a result of being the number one in the world. You're never going to convince them. Do you think, or maybe I should ask you, do you think you can convince them to become the peacemaker, which is, by the way, a much more powerful position than it is to say we dominated them or we we beat them? Yeah, I was very encouraged when I heard that uh, two weeks ago there'd been a nine-hour meeting between China's top foreign policy man, Wang Yi, former foreign minister, now state councillor, and Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor in the White House. So they met for nine hours in Vienna. Both sides said... The talks were positive. That to me suggested guardrails and off-ramps about any possible conflict over Taiwan. That's reassuring. That's reassuring. And Australia should be moving in the wake of that. Kevin Rudd's appointment, I think, was very good from that point of view. He's got such a knowledge of Taiwan and the US-China relationship. He can he can lead some of those hawkish Republicans, 18 of them in the House of Representatives apparently support Taiwanese independence, which is a prescription for war. He can lead, if anyone can, he can lead them through the arguments for the, what I call the cross-strait status quo, the diplomatic formula that has kept the peace. So where... And that's where we should be. That's where Australia should be. Saying when there's something provocative from American like the Pelosi visit last August saying, we, listen, we, we, we think we think cross-strait status quo adhere to the wording that has kept the peace, one China, no attempt at unification, reunification by force. When it kept the peace for 50 years since Kissinger and Zhou Enlai negotiated it in um, 1972, let's adhere to it. Let's uh, adhere to it. it. Yeah, yeah. And the people of Taiwan do not want to be at the, the the fulcrum of a horrific war. It's a beautiful place. It's got high living standards. It's made a transition to developed world status. Don't tweak the language. The language allows them to have autonomy, but to accept language that says, that has the Western world saying, we acknowledge... We recognise, we recognise, that's the right verb, we recognise that China claims Taiwan as a province of China. But how much has Hong Kong been a catalyst all this and what happened Yeah, in yeah Hong well, Kong? I think, I think uh, very provocative demonstrations in Hong Kong. The Chinese response was one I regretted as foreign minister. I would have used the same words of condemnation as Maurice Payne used. Um but they effectively moved in. They did it very subtly. They just applied China's national security laws under which brave dissidents have been imprisoned in Hong Kong. But, Mark, if the worst thing that faces the people of Taiwan would be what prevails in Hong Kong today, then we haven't got a cause for war. I'd like to see the national security law no longer apply in Hong Kong but Hong Kong still has substantially its own system. 
And if that were the outcome that applied in Taiwan, then I can live with that. And then one day there will be, as has happened throughout Chinese history, thousands of years of Chinese history, a different emperor in Beijing and an evolution of their political system. So you're saying at the end of the day it's better to have the Hong Kong outcome, if that's the worst outcome we get, than it is to have a war. Yeah, over over a claim for independence when effectively Taiwan has got autonomy, let's call it autonomy and not be provocative, but under the architecture of this little diplomatic formula negotiated by wise men in 1972, the Shanghai Communique, we, we recognise that the Chinese claim Taiwan as a province of China. That's a diplomatic formula. It kept the peace. And the, Austra- the wisdom of Menzies' approach was, this war will not be ours, Mr. President. He told Eisenhower, he told Kennedy, two US presidents, that Australia wasn't going to be part of a war over the Taiwan Strait. Alexander Downer inherited that position, made the mistake of rendering it explicit and public in 2004. But it seems that now there's a, a notion around that we would automatically be committed if America and again, I'm using these key words, slid or sleepwalked into a war over the Taiwan Strait. I wonder, because it's going to come down to personalities at the end of the day, and I, mean, and I don't, want to, I don't want to undermine your thinking on this and I don't want to undermine the seriousness of all this, but I will say this, but I would like to say this, put it this way. It's going to come down to personalities and character and characteristics of the individuals who make the call at the end of the day, which are presidents and prime ministers, etc. Because, you know, you and I, well, particularly me, I don't have any say in this at this stage because, you know, there's no, no one's asking me to vote on it. And it's a bit like the state of origin. We have Bob Carr who's giving us a completely logical, intellectually balanced um, uh, strategy of avoiding something that doesn't need to happen and it's more a diplomatic, a very diplomatic outcome which keeps things... Ambiguous. Ambiguous. I was going to use the word nice but that's yeah. good enough. Yeah, it's ambiguous. a bit of ambiguity, yeah, a bit of great. ambiguity that both sides can live with. Or do we have, you know, New South Wales versus Queensland, everybody beating their <laughs> chest and, uh, you know, looking at each other straight in the eye and just going for it and, and basically destroying each other. And that's that sort of comes down to personalities at the end of the day, I think. Um, how dangerous is that? Well, it's... it's. How do you get to these people, the, change their view? Yeah, the reason we've elevated in the, uh, the school curriculum, 1914, World War One, is that it illustrates these issues. The happenstance, the happenstance, the fluke, the chance, the element of chance, of accident. You can go to the a museum in Vienna and they've got the car there with bullet holes in it, a phaeton, an open car, that the Archduke and his wife Sophie were travelling in when they were assassinated in Sarajevo on July 28, 1914. And there's the, the weapons in a glass case of the assassins, the Serbian nationalist, and you sit, you, you look at this room, this little room in the Austrian Military History Museum, and you think, from this, from this, a guy coming out of a bar 
seeing his quarry in a traffic jam, pulling out his revolver and shooting them dead when their earlier throwing of a bomb had failed. From this came a colossal world war that had all those Australian forebears of you and me die as they were scrambling out of trenches at, at Lone Pine or on the Western Front. Colossal deaths, an unimaginable 30 million die, and then all these issues get parked for a 19-year truce with a resumption of war in 1939, all from the chance circumstance of what was played out after this assassination in 1914. So chance and personality, you're absolutely correct, the personality of a president, president of China, president of of the US. Um, And it, it, it just makes the scenario all the more frightening. But we should be talking about this because the stakes are so high. To me, Australian history would grind to a terrible halt if there, if there were nuclear strikes on this beautiful continent of ours. Um, and over what? Over a, a matter of who is sovereign in Taiwan when history is going to take care of it anyway. History is going to take care of it. We don't know. China in 30 years' time might be experimenting with democracy. It might be making a transition the way Singapore and South Korea. So you're saying let it unfold? Let it unfold. Let history deal with it. Let let a wiser generation than ours take care of this. And for me, I like the idea, by the way, and I think it's it's got a lot of um, accommodations sitting around it. If America takes the high ground and becomes the peacemaker, they look far more... In intellectually um, capable and, uh, you know, they can maintain their primacy if that's the very – because by going to war, I think they lose their primacy. By my, my, trying to create peace and being clever about it the way you put it, they maintain their primacy. That's right. It's a bit, it's a bit like yeah. uh, 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 the president of China right now in relation to potentially um, building a – some sort of peace arrangement between Russia and Ukraine. Yeah, on on off the back of what they brokered between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Yeah. So um, a more mature Chinese foreign policy, not the, uh, the sort of um, assertiveness of a, uh, an adolescent uh, power, but more maturity in Chinese foreign policy. In every conversation I had with Chinese diplomats, I said, look, you've, you've done yourself harm by this wolf warrior diplomacy. Um, but when you've, when you've reached for uh, big diplomatic statements like managing a peace in Central Asia with the Stan States, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, um, that, that's very powerful to the world and it's, it's getting you friends. So they need to be tutored as much as the Americans. Um, the war has got to be averted. The areas of collaboration between the two sides need to be elevated. And what Kissinger is saying in terms of his history is this. If we could get detente between the Soviet Union, a Marxist-Leninist dictatorship with political prisoners and a iron rule over Eastern Europe and Nixon's America, how can you say it's too hard to get a detente between the US and China, large areas, expand the areas of collaboration, get into the habits of negotiating 
negotiate over artificial intelligence and don't let it become weaponized. That's what Kissinger's saying. Fair enough. For me, it's going to come down to the personalities because it, logic often is defied by people's own egos. And uh, But Bob Carr, look, this has been a fascinating conversation. I wanted you to come on today. I mean, I, I haven't seen you for a long time, but I wanted you to come on today because of uh, – um, I know your intellect around these things and, your, by the way, more importantly, your ability to explain it simply. And I think this has been, for me, been a real eye-opener. So, Bob, thanks very much, mate. Thanks, Mark, and congratulations on your great career, which has gone in terrific uh, speed and into very interesting places. I'm loving since, doing what I since do. Since I appointed you to the powerhouse museum. <laughs> well, one of my best, it's one of my best periods in my life. I did two, two terms. I loved it. I absolutely mm. loved it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Talk with Mark Boris. Audio production by Jessica Smalley. Production assistants, Jonathan Leondis and Simon McDermott. This is a Mentored Podcast. Podcast.